morning, church. It's good to see you all. We're going to study God's Word, so I hope you got a Bible with you. And uh, we're picking up here in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. It's a classic passage. If you're familiar with the Gospels, some of this will be familiar to you. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them, the children, in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. A fascinating documentary series came out several years back in the BBC, and it was called, Who Do You Think You Are? And each episode was basically a, a British celebrity, a well-known British celebrity who was digging into their past, digging into their family history. And they had professional people who worked in that area in history and genealogy, helping them find documents and dig into who they are, what's the story that's led up to their own lives. I saw the episode with, the, uh, with a man named Daniel Radcliffe, better known as Harry Potter. And in that episode, at the very beginning, you see Harry, Daniel, you see him sitting there at a piano in his house, and he's reading these very old handwritten letters. You can tell from the discolored paper how this goes way back, and then there were dates at the bottom, 1914, 1915, 1916, and he's just reading this love note between his great-great-uncle Ernie and Uncle Ernie's true love. And then he comes to the end, he's reading these letters out loud, and, and the person who had done the history work with him says, that's the last one. And it seems like this conversation that he was having with his true love was concluded in a way that was premature, like there was supposed to be more, so it made him wonder, what, what happened in 1916? And then Radcliffe goes back to the hometown of his family there in England, and and he walks up to this old, stately old church. And he walks into the church building and he sees a placard on the wall. And it reads this way. To the glory of God and in proud and loving memory of the following men from this parish. Who in response to the call of their king and country laid down their lives in the great war. 1914 to 1919, and as he scans up and down that placard, he sees the name Ernest McDowell, Uncle Ernie. And then he starts to dig into more and more of that history, the story of his family, and he's digging into it because he wants to know his own story. He knows that the story of his family is, is his own story, which is why the series was named Who Do You Think you are, in another sense, the who do you think you are, it's, um, it's usually a barbed rhetorical question, right, to put you in your place. I remember several years ago, one of my very first jobs as an adult, I worked at North of Grumman, which is like a shipyard. They built Navy ships. I didn't do the actual building of the ships, right, so don't think I was welding. I would love to know how to do that, but that's not what I was doing. Anyway, I remember being called into a meeting with my supervisor at Northrop Grumman, and I was late for that meeting with my supervisor by about five minutes. 
And he didn't say, to my memory, I don't remember him saying, who do you think you are? But what he said had the same effect. And I remember what he said because it was the first time I ever heard that expression before. He said, you know what this is? This is a nickel holding up a dollar. (laughs) And I had never heard that phrase before. What I wanted to tell him is his supervisor kept me late in a meeting, right? So I wanted to say, look, can dollar talk to $5? Because it's going to make nickel feel a whole lot better in this particular moment. But I I didn't say that. I let that one go, right? And, And here the disciples are rebuking the crowd because Jesus has far more important things on the docket than than to talk to kids, than to put his hands on dirty little children and bless them as their parents wait in line. Why? Because the, the undercurrent that's here in our text is the reality of the ancient world, that children were not looked at with sentimentality in the ancient world. They had no social standing. They were to be seen and not heard. They were not valued in that kind of way, right? And so you can imagine the disciples saying, if we let this thing go, this big long line of parents who, who are cheerfully waiting for their children to be blessed, not just by some rabbi, but by Jesus himself, if we let this play out, just give it a minute, and we're going to overhear the most banal conversations, right, where you're going to hear a child talking to the Savior of the world, and he's saying, hey, look at my loose tooth. Right, feel this right here, right? Jesus, could you pray for my hamster? And here come the disciples swooping in and saying, no, he can't. He's the savior of the world. He doesn't pray for hamsters. Right? So everybody pack up your strollers and on your way, right? That's what the disciples do. They disperse the crowds. Basically, who do you think you are? You think you can command an audience with the king? You're of too little importance was the, was the subtext. And in a way, that question, who do you think you are, is something that Jesus throws right back at his disciples. Who do you think you are? hindering these children from coming to me. Don't you know? The kingdom belongs to them. They belong here with me because the kingdom belongs to such as these. It belongs to children and those like him. In an ultimate sense, this is another passage in the Gospels about how upside down Jesus' kingdom is. But we see two things in this passage that are simple and yet very profound for us. The first is this, if you're taking notes. See... God's great love for our children. It's a window into the love of God for children. You know, in in John chapter 14, Jesus says something awesome. He says, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. You run that statement through the Gospels and you learn all kinds of amazing things about God, right? Nobody ever laid eyes on God until the incarnation. And now he's here in living color and he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when you see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, you know God washes dirty feet. When you see Jesus turning over tables in the temple, you know God is angry at false worship. When you see Jesus taking children into his arms, you see God loves and values children. They are precious in his sight. Little ones to him belong, right? You're seeing the tenderness of God. You're seeing this. Jesus enjoyed and valued children. 
Now, that should be no surprise if we read through the Old Testament. There's so much language about God's care, his love for children. He views Israel under the metaphor of a father with his child. He said, I taught you how to walk, Ephraim. God pictures himself with an image of him holding the fingers of Israel and teaching his child to walk. It's a tender, the tenderest of images imaginable. And God says, that's what I'm like. Then Psalm 139, which we looked at about a month ago, where God speaks about how I form children in their mother's wombs and their inward parts. They're fearfully and wonderfully crafted and made by God, his tenderness, the worth and value of children. One of the great promises of God in the Old Testament, it comes to a beleaguered, embattled people. At that point, they had lost everything. They had lost their homeland, they had, they had lost the temple, was it charred ruins, and they had lost their hope. And so God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and deep in Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 54, God announces, I'm going to rebuild the city. But then there's something more than just the rebuilding of the temple, there's, there's something that he promises. It, it speaks of a fuller restoration. God says this through the prophet, O afflicted one. Storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones and lay your foundations. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Notice, when God speaks of their return from exile to their homeland and to their city, it's not enough that you just got the temple back. I'm going to rebuild and set the stones for you to return to worship. And he says, but then bring the kids for a blessing. Great shall be the peace of your children and they'll be taught of the Lord. I will summon the children and I will teach them myself. (laughs) And here in Mark 10, here's God in the flesh. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And what does he do? He comes to Jerusalem and he says, bring the children to me. For a bl- You don't hinder them or I'll get mad. I'll get angry. He gets indignant. It's, it's, the, it's two Greek words that are mashed together. Much grieved. He is much grieved. He is, in our parlance, in our language, he's ticked. There's a couple things that make Jesus angry. With reference to children, you read Matthew chapter 18, those who cause children to stumble, those who don't protect children, God gets angry. He says, your best option is tie a millstone around your neck, dive in the water, because I'm coming for you, right? So God gets angry when we don't protect the vulnerable. But not only that, God gets angry in this text, not just when you don't protect them, but when you don't let them come to me for a blessing. Don't hinder them. Or I'll rebuke you. That's what happens here in this text. The kingdom of God belongs to them. One of the main themes in Mark's gospel is the kingdom of God. That through Jesus, the kingdom of God is arriving on planet earth. It is touching down. It is making landfall in Jesus Christ. And you're seeing that demonstrated. When when Jesus says, I do signs and wonders among you, then you'll know the kingdom has come. And so when he rebukes the winds and the waves, you know the king is here on planet earth and he's bringing the kingdom with him. And when you, when you see him cast out demons and powers that are too strong for humans, you know the kingdom has arrived. And when you see him healing sickness and overcoming death and when you see him forgiving sins, you're seeing signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into planet earth. And in the midst of it all, Jesus is not only showing people that the kingdom is arriving, but he's inviting people into the kingdom. And how does he do that? 
come with me. Follow me. Come into a life shaped by the kingdom that is to come. And yet with all the fireworks of kingly power that you see throughout Mark's gospel, there's a lot about authority, there's a lot about victory and power of God over everything. With all the fireworks of kingly power, Jesus reveals that the king of the kingdom loves children, welcomes children. Matter of fact, the kingdom is for children. Not only that, only for children and those like children. He says, let the little children come to me for the kingdom belongs to such as these. Don't stop them from coming. Think about it. Our culture won't bring our children to Jesus. That's one of those Captain Obvious kind of statements, right? That occasionally we need to make when we're gathered together in worship. Our culture is not a greenhouse for the growth of godliness in our children. It's not going to help them come and find Jesus and find a blessing at his hand. By the way, we've never been promised that our culture would help bring our children to Jesus. We've never been promised, right, that we get to live in a culture where Christian faith gets to sit at the head of the table of ideas. We may have seen that in some regard in American history, even here recently, but we've never been promised, and nobody around the world, none of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, and the story, the lion's share of the story for the last 2,000 years is that the ball is bouncing away from Christians in the state and in culture and in government. In our cultural moment, there is increased pressure to not embrace Jesus, to not embrace Christian convictions, biblical convictions, especially about gender and human sexuality. Our kids, friends, are immersed in that culture. Perhaps some of you saw a video, I think it was put out on July the 1st, this was very recently, where um, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus sang these words, as it were, to evangelical Christians, and these were the words that they sang. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. Funny, just this once, you're correct. We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. You can keep them from disco, warn about San Francisco. The song ends by them just repeating over and over, we're coming for your children. Now, we don't, respond to that. I'm not, I'm not citing that or quoting that to throw chum in the water and get us all angry and lathered up and go, you know, bear the weapons of a culture war. That, that's not why I'm reading that. I don't want us to be snarky about that quote. I'm, I'm not calling us to respond. I don't think scripture calls us to respond with hatred and fear to that reality. I read it simply to get us to remember what's obvious, and it's this. No one in this world is going to clear a path for our children to find life in Jesus, except godly parents and a solid local church. That's, those are the basic building blocks of a Christian family, of a Christian home. You need, by God's grace, godly parents. And failing that, you need disciple makers who will mentor a generation in Jesus, who will clear a path for blessing from Jesus in big and small ways. So you just think about this. Let's not just think big and grand. Let's think small ways that we clear a path to Jesus. When you make time for children in your life, not just your own children, for children in your life, when you make time for them, when you apologize 
and you say, forgive me. You confess your own sin, your own weakness. You're, you're clearing a path for them to find the blessing in Jesus. When you talk about the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, talk about it when you're on the way somewhere, when you're on the way back. Write it on the doorpost and on your gates. Talk about the covenant. Talk about his grace. Talk about the Lord. When you show them how you yourself are practicing for the coming kingdom in the way that you live and work and love and worship, a holistic life under God and under Jesus Christ. When we do those big and small things, what are we doing? We're not hindering them. We are clearing a path for them to, for them to make their way toward Christ and his hand of blessing. It's a beautiful thing that happens in the kingdom of God. You know, we talk about how the culture doesn't bring our children to Jesus. The next point is this. The church sometimes fails to prioritize God's heart for children. You know, in this passage, the ones who are hindering the children from finding a blessing are church people. <laughs> uh, they're Bible readers. They're disciples. They have been following Jesus. They, they teach. They pray for people. That, that's the kind of people, right? I'm not attributing terrible motives to the disciples here. I think they're trying to protect Jesus. I think they, they're well-intentioned. They see their master. They have front row seats. They see their master constantly pressed upon by crowds of people, needy people, always around him. We need you to do this. We need you to do this. Somebody touched the hem of his garment, right? Just people all around him. And they're like, you know, enough is enough. Sometimes he just needs to rest. And we're calling an audible. He's done for the day. Closed. Messiah's shop is closed for today. Come back tomorrow, right? The disciples say enough and they rebuke the people. And then this rebuke party breaks out because they rebuke the people and Jesus does what? He rebukes the disciples for rebuking the people. And what, what's the end, end game? What happens at the end of this passage is verse 16. Is Jesus gets what he wants, doesn't he? he, he he's got a child in each arm. He takes the children, that language, in his arms. That's what suggests in this passage that we're talking about little children. He takes them in his arms. If you've got teenagers, for example, you know that if you try to take them in your arms, you're going to get two things, a bulging disc and an angry teenager, right? Those are kind of the guaranteed things, right? So the, the, when he takes them in his arms, what you're seeing likely is God holding a five-month-old, God sitting down with a seven-year-old girl. And what is he saying? May the Lord bless you. He lays his hands on their heads. May the Lord bless you. Perhaps I bless you. <laughs> I will keep you. I will cause my face to shine upon you. He's uttering the sweetest benediction of God's people running all the way back to the book of Numbers. I bless you. I will keep you. I will cause my face to shine upon you, little one. If you were a believing parent and you're standing in line because you're inclined to think this isn't just some rabbi, he's the Messiah we've been waiting for, then these words from Jesus with their hand, with his hand on your child's head, you would never have forgotten this moment. For the rest of your life, you would say, I remember a day when the Savior of the world put his hand on my five-year-old and said, I bless you. Son, daughter, child. Brooke Hills, we, we don't have 
Jesus Christ here in the flesh, walking the halls on Sunday morning, pronouncing a blessing over children. But we know this from Scripture, from the Gospels, that Jesus is present when we gather in his name. What did Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. So there is, at Jesus' word, we can be confident. Jesus walks the halls on Sunday morning, pronouncing a blessing on children. He still gathers the children. He still confers a blessing on all who trust in him. On all who listen to his word, he is building their lives on a rock. We have that promise. On all who run to him with our heavy hearts, on all who look to his cross, he confers fresh blessings. (laughs) It's going to take all of us to commend a compelling faith to the next generation. We have, get this, one job as it relates to the next generation. We have one job. Bring our children to Jesus for a blessing. Bring our children to Jesus for a blessing. You know, when Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, sometimes our first impulse is to see children as a metaphor for the weak or the dependent, right? Well, I would offer to us this idea, that children aren't standing in for something else before children are standing in for children. (laughs) They'll they'll stand in for something else to be sure. In just a second, we'll see that. But children stand in for children, right? It, it, It actually, his promise actually includes the children who are right there. Just think about it. When the coach says at the end of the game, it's players like Jenny who make this team a joy to coach. Does the coach mean, I don't mean Jenny, I mean players like Jenny make this team a joy to coach, but not actually Jenny. So when Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these, he doesn't mean, well, not these, just ones like them. You know, if you said this is the kind of day that will always be remembered, you don't mean, I mean, I'll actually forget this one. No, you're including this one. There's an inclusive aspect. It belongs to children, these children, and those like these children. It is a promise that God loves and welcomes and draws children to himself. The kingdom belongs to these and those who are like them. So what do we learn here? We learn that our children have a capacity for a relationship with God. Jesus is acknowledging children have, as image bearers, spiritual capacities. All the wiring is there for them to relate to God in covenant, for them to repent and believe, for them to hear the gospel and understand it when they're in an age where they can understand. They, all the wiring is there. Nothing new needs to happen. I wonder how many, can I just, audience participation here, how many of you believe you came to faith in Jesus before the age of 10? So many stories, you can put your hands down, so many stories in this room that when I didn't know basic algebra, I met the Lord of glory, (laughs) right? I understood the simple gospel. Why? Because God didn't make the central story of the Christian faith something that could only be understood by PhDs. He put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kids could reach them. 
A simple message. Believe him. The one on the cross died for you. His, his work on the cross covers everything that you've done wrong, buddy. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you're home forever. It's a glorious truth. Even from a young age, when he says the kingdom belongs to such as these, it doesn't imply that children are naturally righteous, that they have some inherent virtue, that, that that's why the kingdom belongs to them, because they have this inherent virtue that children have. Again, this text does not sentimentalize children. The point is not that children are virtuous and therefore the kingdom is theirs. The point is that children are dependent and helpless. They get that. Every day they're relying on the provision of somebody else. So this message is low-hanging fruit for children. How do we bring children to Jesus and not hinder them? I've referenced a couple of things earlier, but we, we see them. We value them. We welcome them. And I'm talking about when we gather on Sunday mornings, do you see children? Or do you just look past them and look over them? Do you see them? Do you let them know that you see them? Do you welcome them? I could remember people in the congregation where we worshiped, and I can remember the ones who greeted me. I remember Brother Dutch. I don't know his last name to this day. Brother Dutch, he always found me every Sunday morning, and he came up to me. He was one of the oldest men in our congregation. He'd come up, and he'd tell me the worst jokes and we just, half of them I didn't even understand, but he would laugh at them, so I would laugh at them. So there's me and Brother Dutch in the back of the room, just dying laughing. I'm laughing at him, he's laughing at the joke. But he saw me every Sunday, and I remember brothers and sisters, older men and women in our church who saw me, who welcomed me, who called me into worship, who said, it's good to see you, you look sharp today. Your shoulders are broad, right? They're just pointing out, they're, they're encouraging that was the environment I grew up in. People weren't hindering me. We, how do we do it? We, we create space for children to understand the message of the gospel. We create environments where they will be able to grasp it, where we sing the songs and we hear the words. We bring the word to them in language that they can understand. And then when they come into this room, when they're old enough to begin some semblance of understanding and they come into this room, what do we do? As a whole church, I'm just talking about parents, as a whole church, we show them. We show them what it looks like to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth with reverence and with joy. We show them. In big and small ways, we bring them by doing what? By, by volunteering for, for preschool. <laughs> volunteering for Brook Hills Kids. Volunteering, leading small groups and student ministries, right? We... we we don't hinder them. We clear a path for them when we cheer on the work of staff members who are giving themselves to that kind of work. When we give to the local church in the offering and we're supporting the work of ministry to children here and in our city, that, that matters. And our giving makes a statement that let's keep doing that. That matters. They matter. Dr. David Adams is a professor, was a professor many years ago um, at Boyce College, and he would use an analogy to highlight the importance of children's ministry, and here was his analogy. He said, if you had a child that needed heart surgery, he said, would you go to the hospital and say, look, she needs, my daughter needs heart surgery, but it's a really small heart. So do you have an intern? Do you have somebody who, who just needs some reps? 
maybe somebody who needs some experience. It's very small, probably very uncomplicated. So just, you know, whoever you've got, I'm sure that's going to do. No. You'd say, I want the best and the brightest. I want somebody who's performed a thousand heart surgeries on a thousand children. I want somebody who says, I love cardiac surgery, a bumper sticker on their car. Their favorite classic rock band is heart, right? You, just everything you could possibly have that puts the ball bouncing in your direction. If it's your child, you want the best. Give me the highest paid person on this team, <laughs> Right? Because you set a value on your child. I could go through the names of our staff members and I hope there would be a sense of, yeah, we hired those people. We hired people who eat, drink, sleep, pray, and labor to clear a path for our children to find the blessing. They come alongside believing parents in great ways. You see God's great love for our children and second, you see God's great love for us. Notice again what happens. Jesus rebukes them for hindering children from coming to him. And then he says, the kingdom belongs to such as these. And then look at verse 15. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So now things are getting even more awkward because the disciples basically said, who do you think you are that you could bring those of such little importance to one who is of infinite importance? And Jesus says, who do you think you are? You think you're not children? Do you, you think you can come into the kingdom some other way besides being like a child? The only ones who are allowed in here are children and those who receive the kingdom like Children, Look, we breathe the secondhand smoke of a culture addicted to power. Addicted to self, self-interest, self-definition. Don't tell me there's something I need outside myself. Everything I need is all up in here. I just need to dig deeper into who I already am, and that's all I need. Look, if that's you... And that could be any of us because we live in this culture, right? If that's you, your resistance to your smallness might be what keeps you from the kingdom. Your allergic reaction to the sense of personal weakness in your life might be the thing that keeps you from the kingdom. Look, the gospel is offensive Hopefully not because of our bad attitudes and the way we represent it in the culture, right? The gospel's plenty offensive on its own because the gospel says you're not enough and you will never be enough. You can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps because you don't have the strength. And even if you had the strength, you don't have the bootstraps. You don't have the boots. There's nothing you can do to ingratiate yourself. You have no claim on God's grace. You have no chips to bargain with. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church, and it has a who do you think you are type of feel to it. He says to a church that loved power and greatness, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. That is the Apostle Paul saying, who do you think 
You are. Your children, you have no power of your own. You're utterly dependent on the grace of God or your toast, and so am I. Friends, I've got good news and bad news this morning, and I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is this. God's kingdom isn't offered to those who have it all together. But here's the good news. God's kingdom isn't offered to those who have it all together. And depending on whether that's good news or bad news has everything to do with whether you are like a child. <laughs> Helpless, dependent, powerless. So here's the question. Are you comfortable being a child in God's eyes? Are you comfortable being a child in God's eyes? So often, it's not our weakness that keeps us from Jesus. It's our strength. It's not our littleness. It's our bigness. It's not our hang-ups and our vices. It's our hyped-up virtues that keep us from Jesus. That's the conversation Jesus had all day and every day with the Pharisees. It's your virtues that are in the way. Look, ask yourself the question in our power-hungry, greatness-hungry culture, who wants a religion where the central story is God saves the weak? I do. And if you've read Romans 3 or looked hard enough in the mirror, so do you. We are the weak. We are the powerless. Look, every Sunday, I want the gospel to bring me to the end of myself and there to show me the perfect sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, that's my goal for all of us, to bring us to the end of ourselves, and there we meet the all-sufficient, perfect Savior. Who do you think you are? It's an identity question. Are you a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe you're not. Maybe, honestly, this is the first time you've um, faced that question genuinely. So then the question becomes, are you willing to put your whole life in the hands of Jesus and to do so because you're convinced you need him. You need his blood to cover your sins. You need his power to be made perfect in your weakness. Because friend, that's what childlike faith says. And if that's what your heart is saying, that's a gift of God. It's called the gift of repentance. And if that's what's going on in your soul, it's time to believe. And guess what? If you're believing, the kingdom is yours. Because <laughs> it belongs to children. When we come to God like children, there's a missional implication here, and I'll wrap up with this. When we come to God like children, we're less prone to block other little ones from coming and finding the blessing. You know, I think the church in many ways has taken a message of grace and turned it into an occasion of pride. We forget what evangelism is, for example. What is evangelism? Evangelism is as has been said many times, is one beggar telling another beggar where there's bread. If that's what evangelism is for us, there's, there's something about how the gospel tenderizes the church. It makes the church sweet. It makes the church soft and welcoming. It makes the church amazed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Brook Hills, we have the huge privilege of commending the faith to our children, and it's gonna take the whole church to do it. And every week together, under the ministry of the gospel, what do we do? I hope you think about 
gather worship this way. Every week when we gather together under the ministry of the gospel, what we're doing is this. We're coming to Jesus for a blessing. And we can come because we know who we are. Who do you think you are? Why are you here? I'm here because I'm a child of God. This kingdom belongs to me because I'm his child.